Well, I'll start this recording. We're going to read um, Holy Scripture, and I just uh, pray that the Spirit works, even as we read Scripture, that we would feel God in our presence, and that He would speak through His Word and make Himself known in new ways today. And so I'll pray before the sermon, but just to even read Scripture with a sense of expectation that God will speak again, as He always does and always will, to the glory of His name. This is from Mark 6. It's the beheading of John. It's going to be an interesting one to consider today. King Herod heard of it, um, for Jesus' name had become known. Some were saying, John the baptizer has been raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in him. Now, he's talking here about the uh, miracle of the loaves that has just occurred. That's what they heard of. But others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had sent men who arrested John, bound him, and put him into prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him, She could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he liked to listen to him. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his courtiers and officers and for the leaders of Galilee. And when his daughter Herodias came in and danced... That really should be in the other, uh, in the Mark and in the Matthean version, it's the daughter of Herodias, just in case that, that can be kind of confusing. So actually, Herodias' daughter came in and danced. She pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it. And he solemnly swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you, even half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What should I ask for? And her mother replied, the head of John the baptizer. Immediately, she rushed back to the king and requested, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was deeply grieved. Yet, out of his regard for his oaths and for the guests, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent a soldier off Uh, a soldier of the guard, with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded John in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother, and when the disciples heard about it, they came and took his body, and they laid it in a tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Heavenly Father, Almighty King, Lord of all creation. Be with us today by your spirit as we try to make sense of the words that you've inspired in scripture and given to us, that we might see and meet once again in them you, that we might see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as he comes to us through the pages of holy scripture, and that that spirit would confront us and change us and challenge us and comfort us and convict us in ways that make us understand you more and love you more and seek you more and your will in this place. So we expect that you will be among us, 
And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is, this maybe could have even been one of those difficult texts that we did last um, semester because it's really a strange text about a beheading. Um, so some of you have been in class with me for two hours at this point, and the last thing you need is, again, me. But um, I apologize for that, but I'm going to bring you scripture, so it's not me, it's the word of God, it's, I'm just the messenger. Um, this verse really gets at one main point, and it's in the middle of the, the section, and I'll read it again, and, and maybe I'll just read it right now just to focus us on it. Um, and it is in chapter 6 of Mark, if you have your Bibles, you can read along. Um, and it's after that she's been asked to behead uh, John, the, she's asked that John the Baptist be beheaded. The king was exceedingly sorry, verse 26. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Because of his, his oaths that he took and because of the guests, what would they think? He didn't want to break his oath, even though he feared John and in some ways respected him and enjoyed listening to him. And I think when we get at the heart of this passage, what we'll find is that the tyrant turns out to be weak, and the prisoner turns out to be the powerful one. And that is so gospel to me. We've seen it many times in Paul that your strength is made perfect in weakness. I think that's what actually is demonstrated here. That the weak one is the king, and the strong one's the beheaded prisoner. And so I want to invite you into that, not only to say, who was John the Baptist and what did he do, but to invite you into the narrative of John rather than the narrative of Herod. To invite you in the path of weakness, which is actually power, and to take you away from the path of prestige and political influence that seems like power, but it's really deadly. And especially when it comes to the influence that other people have over the way that we live, over the way that we act, and over the way that we move and have our being. The United States is already in its, uh, sorry, I'll talk about the states when I talk about politics, but I, I promise you this will apply also to Australian politicians, I'm sure. I just don't know who any of them are, okay? Kamala Harris is someone who's running uh, as a Democratic candidate for president in the United States, and she comes from the state of California, where she was a district attorney. Uh, some people really like her, some people hate her, as it is with politics, right? And as it is in political debates, recently Kamala Harris got up, and it was Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren and all the candidates who may be the presidential candidate in 2020. And there was like 10 of them on the stage. And the CNN person said to them, which one of you would give up your private health insurance that your employer pays for so that we could have a universal health care system, like Australia, right, that everyone is covered under because we don't have it in the States. And all, you know, all the hands started going up including Kamala Harris's hand. And there was cheers, and there was crowd was roaring, and it was a very popular thing at that time in that debate in a progressive setting to say, I'm for Medicare for all so that every man, woman, and child can have health care. Right? That was exactly the thing you want to say to please the crowd when your main concern is that they'll like you. And so you act in a way that elicits a positive response. And, and I'm not just taking jabs at Kamala Harris. Think of yourself when you think of this, and, and I think of myself, certainly. And, and to what extent do we act in this way? Well, about 10 minutes after the debate, she then goes on CNN, and they say, 
you're going to take people's health care away and make them go on this public system. Oh, no, I, you know, that's not really what I meant. What I meant was that people could have a choice, you know, private insurance or public health. Then the next couple days later, she goes on another segment and says, no, I'm totally for Medicare for all. Medicare for all, Medicare for all. And then in another setting that's a bit more conservative in the middle of the country, she flip-flopped again and changed her, her policy on healthcare. And you've seen politicians do this, right? It's not just Kamala Harris. Pretty much all of them do it. And why do they do that? Why do they do that? It's not necessarily because they've taken an oath, but because they want to be perceived by the audiences that they're trying to influence as being someone that is in a positive light. Right, as being someone that's received the accolades of the crowd. It feels good to be cheered for. It feels good when you're everybody's friend. It feels bad when you say something that makes people think that you're suspect. And in the same way, that's what happened with Herod in this situation. And we're going to press into that a little bit today. So I'm going to go verse by verse for a little bit. And then I'm going to apply this to us in ministry and parenting. So that's every single one of us. right? And, and then I'm going to ask us to I'll conclude by asking us uh, to kind of live in the way of John the Baptist rather than in the way of the weakness, really, of the politician Herod. So it says in verse 14, King Herod heard of Jesus that he had done this miracle with the loaves. He had just changed the loaves to feed 5,000 men and women and the fish as well. And so Herod had heard of this, and he thinks for some reason that this is a reincarnation a resurrection of John the Baptist, which if you know Jewish literature at the time would be a really weird thing for a Jew to say. You see, they believed that the resurrection would happen, but it would happen at the end of time, not in the middle of history. And so there was a great superstition around John, and you can see that Herod, having done what he did, was really freaked out by this. And he basically thinks that Jesus is a reincarnation of John, which is weird in of itself and, and not really commensurate with Judaism of the time. Others thought it was Elijah. Others thought it was an old prophet. But Herod says in verse 16, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. <coughs> More significant, though, is it says, For Herod, who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So the problem here was John the Baptist had angered his brother Philip's wife, whom Herod had married while his brother was still alive. It wasn't like his brother passed on and this was a levirate marriage which would have been covered in Jewish law. This was Herod marrying Philip's wife while the dude was still alive. He just said, I like her. Let's get married. She's like, I'm married to Philip. He said, I don't care. And John the Baptist says, dude, look in Leviticus. This is not in accord with the scriptures. So Herodias, the one who had left Philip to marry her brother Herod, which is itself, even from a non-Jewish perspective, not a, a... ethically great thing to do on either of their perspectives. None of them are above board. Uh, Even without whatever Leviticus says, just from a human perspective, this is not a good thing. We wouldn't wouldn't call this good moral behavior, right? Um, and, And what happens is, John had been saying to Herod, John the Baptist, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a grudge against him, and she wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Now, what does that word feared mean? It really means that he had reverence for John. He wasn't afraid of John so much as that he had a a holy kind of reverence for John. He knew there was something true about what John was saying. And he was listening to him. 
And who knows, maybe he would have been convinced had he not um, acquiesced to the crowd. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. So there's a sense that when we're walking in the way of holiness and righteousness, we, we, we act in accord with that, and we do the things that are in accord with that. Once we open up the floodgates of sin, what happens is we basically invite ourselves into the deepest of human depravity. Have you seen that in yourselves before? That you say, oh, sin is not so bad. It's just a little sin. And what happens is sin opens up a floodgate that destroys you. Absolutely destroys you. And that's going to happen to John. When he heard, when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, yet he was glad to hear him. And then it goes into this opportunity that came up for the daughter of Herodias to dance at Herod's party. Now, what's going on with that? Now, here's a culture where the woman would not even have been eating with the men in this patriarchal culture at this time. The woman would have been in a separate area together. The men would have been uh, having dinner together, discussing politics. These are all the leaders of Galilee, all the big, important people. So the men would have been in there together. So a woman would not have been, even been present in the room. Never mind a 12 to 13-year-old girl, which is what the Greek word behind the girl means, who was you know, ushered into this room to do what? To dance for a room full of adult men in an area where no woman in that culture would have been. So this is a, a manipulation and a kind of debaucherous situation already. We see that these, these grown men have invited a young girl in to dance for them in a way that we can only say would have been probably inappropriate, the whole thing in that culture. right? Certainly even today that would be considered weird, inappropriate, and uh, completely out of order. But it was totally out of order in this culture. So he's so pleased with the dance, which again is itself disturbing. He's so pleased with the dance that he, in front of the whole crowd, offers her half his kingdom. The first problem with this is Herod didn't have a kingdom to offer. He was a puppet king of Rome over Israel at the time, but he was controlled completely by Rome. So he didn't have half a kingdom. This was him just going, I'll give you half my kingdom. It's yours. Take it. Now, he didn't have that to offer, so he's already shooting his mouth off. And he didn't have anything to offer, really. But what is he doing? He's bragging in front of the crowds to try and you know, seem uh, powerful and prestigious and like his influence could sway the powerful politicians of Rome and Galilee. And so, of course, she asks for the head of John, and she goes beyond what her mother says. Her mother tells her, ask for the head of John, right? And what does she come in? She says, give me the head of John the Baptist on a, on a platter, right? And so the, the ancient patristic fathers, when they commented on this, said, you went from a banquet of life when Jesus multiplies the bread and the loaves, the loaves and the fish, to a banquet of death, where the only food discussed or the only thing on a platter that's discussed is somebody's head. Right? To give you the difference between Jesus and, and what's happening with Herod, what kind of king is Jesus? He's the kind that gives the banquet of life that feeds the abundant uh, uh, crowds, and fe- not only their, their bodies, but feeds their soul. And what kind of king is Herod? He's a coward king who basically does whatever it takes to win over the crowds. And the only thing served at that dinner, at that banquet, is John's head on a platter. And so that's a sickening 
escalation of what the mother asks for something terrible and the daughter even ups the ante a bit. Just give it to me on a platter. A disgusting ordeal indeed. And it says the king was exceedingly sorry. But, here's the verse, because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his oath to her. Because of the oath that he took and because of the guests, he did not want to break the oath. And see, the tyrant will turn out to be the weak one and the prisoner will turn out to be the one who has power. You see, John loses his head and Herod tries to save face. But in the process, Herod is completely willing to just give up his backbone and just acquiesce to whatever the the culture wants. And I think that's the problem that we have to look out for. Sometimes in trying to please the crowd, we'll keep our head by giving up our backbone. And we don't stand for anything when we stand for nothing. And that is, John is sort of like a chameleon in that sense. He just absorbs whatever the room is saying. And that becomes what he's about. He's also a coward because he can't stick to his principles, which he knew were right when he listened to John. He knew that John was a holy and righteous man. But because of the oaths and because of the crowd, he went with his chameleon-like, cowardly way of trying to pacify the audience that was most present with him. He's like a politician without a spine rather than a prophet without a head. But I would submit to you that it's better to be a prophet without a head than a politician without a spine. Because spineless leadership just flops around on the floor. It can't do anything. It stands for nothing. It's completely useless, as was the ministry of Herod in his so-called kingship. Now, this is really important for us, and I want to talk about it in two ways as it relates to us. Which is not good, because what I'm doing is putting us in Herod place. It's nice when you're inside like the Jesus role in the scriptures. You're like, oh, I could see myself as Jesus here, or I could see myself as Paul here, or the good person. But we're going to put ourselves in the Herod role for this one, which means we are the beheader rather than the one losing our head. I think two things happen in our church cultures when we adopt the way of Herod rather than the way of John. And just to make sure I don't go over time, I will make sure I stick to what I have here. Okay, and because Simon has already said, Uh, We knew you were going to be preaching, so we've adjusted the liturgy a bit. Don't worry, I'm not going to go over. I'm being really good today. I don't want to be like Herod. I want to be like John, except I'd prefer to leave with my head on still, so hopefully you enjoy the sermon. Um, I think that the two ways we mimic what Herod does are that we act like chameleons, and we can act like cowards as pastors and parents. Both are well-intentioned, but both are wrong. And both lead us in the way of death rather than the way of life. When we act like chameleons, we're like Herod in the sense that we so identify with the people that we're serving that we just absorb their ethos. We absorb their culture. We absorb their ethics. We absorb their ideology and clothe it in a Jesus costume And then we, instead of baptizing people into a church that challenges them, we baptize whatever they bring to the church as if it already is good. And this is a problem. Because that's the way of the coward king rather than the crucified God. And that's the way of the powerful person rather than the powerless prisoner. We want to be like the powerless prisoner who is actually the powerful one. 
And here's what I mean. If you're a parent, and some, some, some of us are parents, some of us have uh, younger sisters or brothers, and, um, and maybe you're a pastor. Chances are, if you're not a pastor or a parent, you're in some derived sort of area of both of those. Maybe you're one or the other, but you're probably both if you're here. People have come to me in the past and said, you know, I really want, uh, uh, this is how I feel. I really feel like I should just be free. And, it, and people have come to me in the past and said, and just, is it okay to kind of experiment sexually and just to, you know, the last questions like this. Or I really want to do this or do that. And they're, what they're looking for me to say, whatever it is, is, you know what? Follow your conscience. Just go where God leads. I give it my blessing. So that they can go and do whatever they want with the blessing of their spiritual leader, right? And so I become a chameleon. I simply absorb whatever they're bringing in. And because I like them, I love them, I, I want them to be happy, I just spit back out whatever they spit into me. You know what I mean? And, and so that's a problem when it comes to leadership as a parent or as a pastor. And it is a temptation, and if you don't feel it already, you will feel it. That you identify with a human being, and you're willing to dispense with truth so that you can try to be loving to them. You're willing to dispense with truth so that you can pacify the crowd. And that is a key area that we have to be careful with. And it's not just in areas of human sexuality, but in areas of doctrine as well. There's a lot happening in, in not only the, I'm, I'm not speaking of the Uniting Church, by the way. So in North America, in all over the world, there's a lot of things happening. And I gave a talk in Trinity uh, Unplugged on this called, I can't remember what it was called, but it was about how we can't reason our way to God, basically. There are a lot of people saying, leaders, I don't really know. Just come along with me while I try and find out. Right? That's the answer to, to people. Because what are people saying when they come into the church? They're saying, I have doubts. I don't know about the resurrection. I don't know about the Trinity. I don't know about the exclusivity of Jesus. I don't know about the gospel. And instead of saying, I hear you. I hear you. Come walk with me and walk toward the truth and leading them to the truth. A lot of times what we're tempted to do is say, you know what? I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have any idea. Maybe there is no resurrection. Maybe there is no trinity. Maybe there is no word of God. Come walk with me and find out. And so what we end up doing is leading people as what Jesus calls blind guides, which is what the Pharisees did. We, we so empathize with people that we even absorb their own doubtful disposition instead of being able to point them the truth. And what happens is we lead as leaders who keep our heads but lose our backbones. We have nothing sturdy to offer people because we're the same. We give this, I'm the same as you. I'm the same as you. I have the same doubts. And the issue with that is, and I'm drawing this out of, by the way, just to remind you, the fact that Herod is willing to dispense with the fact that he knows John is righteous. He knows John is holy. We dispense with truth because it's not expedient for us. We dispense with truth even out of a good disposition for love and for empathy with people. We're willing to lay that down so that we can over-empathize with people. And in so doing, we lose the ability to truly lead people because what we're telling them is, come with me as I walk into the dark rather than follow me as I lead you into the light. And that's dangerous. And I see it more and more in the church. One of the places that I saw this, and I talked about it in that talk, is a podcast called The Liturgist Podcast. 
which is uh, this group of people who lost their faith in Christianity, and now they're reconstructing their faith. But they'll say things like, we don't know, we don't believe in God today. Maybe he's like an ocean, and he's like a tree. And they, well, they, they're American, and they're sort of hipster like California, so they'll be like, I don't know, man. Maybe he's like a tree. He's like, he's like leaves on a tree, man, you know? Like leaves on a tree that have veins and stuff, and then the ocean. And you go, what the heck is that? And they're like, come, follow me into the tree ocean man God thing that I don't know if I believe in. And so deconstructing everything and then saying, follow me into the nothing is, has become an, a, a way that Christians have led. And I think that is more of the way of Herod than the way of Jesus. I think that's more of the way of Herod than the way of John. Um, and it's an, it's an acquiescing to the culture of doubt or to the cultural norms of the day rather than something that invites people into a different story, a better story a story that's been true from the beginning, a story that's true today, and a place that we can point people to with certitude. Now, that's not to say we know everything, but it is to say that when we're put on the stand and people ask us a question and we're in the position that Herod was in, we don't say, because I was afraid of the crowd, I gave up. I gave up on the resurrection. I gave up on the Trinity. I gave up on the truth. Like I said, we keep our heads, but we lose our spines. We become leaders without a backbone. And we have become leaders without a gospel to point people toward. But when we have the truth to point people towards, the truth that's been known, the faith once delivered to the saints, then we have somewhere to point people. And then the church has a reason to exist. The church has a reason to exist. Sometimes people say, we need to get on with the mission of the church. And that's all good, as long as it means we do it in submission to God's revealed will, as it appears in Holy Scripture in its submission to Jesus Christ. That's where we find the mission of the church. So, here's what I would say for us today. As we look at Herod's beheading of John the Baptist, and we think about how we lead not only in the church, but lead our own children, we, we really ought to ask, would we be willing to sell out in order to feel comfortable, in order to see privilege come our way, in order to see prestige and politics work to our advantage. Would we be willing to sell out Jesus for that? And we perceive it sometimes as a pastoral thing. But is it? Or is that the true weakness? It's the weakness of the tyrant. It's the weakness of the politician. It's the weakness of the person who's willing to fake it and sell out that doesn't lead to the way of life. It's the, it's the weakness and powerlessness of the prisoner who's beheaded. That's the one we want to follow. And John has been called a type of Jesus. In the way that John gives his life and sacrifices his life, it's a picture of what will happen to Jesus. And people say from outside the Christian culture, look at that weak Savior in the early church. Look at that weak Savior nailed to a tree. You idiots. Why would you follow him? What a weak, stupid God. That is what Christianity is, Paul says. He doesn't say it's a good, wholesome religion where everybody gets along and worships a dude nailed to a tree who rose from the dead. What a preposterous religion. What foolishness. Unless it is true, then it's the gospel. And I'd rather be a fool for Christ than a fake for the crowd. Wouldn't you? I would rather to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ than someone who's a faithless chameleon of the Christian 
of the culture outside of Christianity. Just a chameleon, just absorbing everything they are and spitting it back out to them. I would rather be a headless prophet than a spineless politician as a leader. And I would rather follow a crucified King Jesus than the coward King Herod. And that's what I'm calling us into today. When we look at Herod, here's a tragic figure who goes down in history not because of his faithfulness, but because he sold out one of the prophets of God, the man who pointed away from himself and pointed to Jesus. But was God's plan frustrated by the power of humankind? It was not. Because the weakness of the tyrant was revealed that in the pages of history, he goes down as the loser. And the, and the John who was beheaded and died alone is the one who goes down in history as the one who said, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear these things and we see the uh, tragic figures in Scripture. And in some sense, my first impulse is not to cast a stone at them, but to see a reflection of myself in their weakness, in their unbelief, in their capitulation to the cultures and norms of the day, rather than to see those norms transformed by your living word, which renews us and causes us to be born again by the Holy Spirit. And so I pray that for myself today, that you would help and lead me and lead us as a community, that when push comes to shove, in the unpopular, unexpedient, very politically dangerous zone of saying, Jesus is Lord, and I'm going to faithfully, faithfully follow him, that when we do that, we would do it not as politicians, we would do it not as cowards, but that we would do it as the crucified King Jesus does it, laying down our lives even to the point of death, knowing that nothing can frustrate the power and plan of God, carried out not through human politics and power, but through the weakness and foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.